You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. So if you have Bibles, you can make your way to Acts 19. There's black hardcover Bibles under your seat or somewhere nearby there. Uh, page 928 is where you'll find this text on, uh, in, that, in that Bible. Uh, in the book of Acts, and especially now that we're in the second half of this book, we get to see a lot of ways that the New Testament, the, the second half, so to speak, or ish of our, of our scriptures, uh, ties together. The, the churches that Paul establishes on these missionary journeys are the churches to whom he then writes the epistles or his pastoral letters. And Paul actually often is writing even as he is traveling on these journey. So in some of the letters that he writes, we actually get insight not only to the church he's writing to, but to some of the other churches he's visiting in the process. So for example, in Acts 19, as we're going to read in a moment, Paul is in Ephesus uh, and he's there for nearly three years, which is the longest stop he has on any of his missionary journeys. Near the end of his time there, he writes the letter that you and I know as 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians obviously tells us a lot about what's going on at the church in Corinth, which is a city 50 miles to the west of Ephesus. We talked about Corinth a little bit last week in Acts 18. But at the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul has this line that actually gives us a lot of insight into Ephesus as well. It's a kind of summary statement about his three years in Ephesus. And it reads this way, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 8 and 9. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost... For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. In other words, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, Ephesus is a place of both opposition and opportunity. Opposition, there are many adversaries, and at the very same time, opportunity, a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And those words frame really well the entire chapter of Acts 19. Uh, They frame what plays out in the city of Ephesus. So as I read for us this morning, I want you to listen for both the opposition and the opportunity that Paul and the church there in Ephesus experience. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. 
And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil, priest, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. 
Open our ears that we may hear what you will speak. Open our minds that we may understand what it really means to revere you. Open our hearts that we may grasp the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden in Christ. And then, Father, open our mouths that we may proclaim the mystery of the gospel and that like Paul and the church in Ephesus may speak it boldly. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So opportunity and opposition. Uh, That is the story of Paul and the early church in Ephesus. It's also the story of life in this world for any of the people of God in any time and place. And so we're going to spend our time this morning examining the, the opportunity and the opposition there in Ephesus, but also some implications for us as we seek to carry on the mission of Jesus in our own time and in our own place. So first, let's talk about opportunity. Opportunity. Uh, this door for effective work opens so wide in Ephesus that Luke can write two incredible things in this chapter. He can first write in verse 10, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, all of them. And then he can write in verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And I found myself thinking as I was reading that again this week, like, oh, that that would be true of us in this region, that you and I would get to be present in this region and labor here with the hope of every single man, woman, and child, not only hearing the gospel once, but having saturation of the good news of Jesus, where they get to hear it often, over and over again in their lives. That we would labor with confidence that the gospel is increasing and prevailing mightily, as it was there in Ephesus. Luke, is then, he then includes three vignettes that that illustrate this opportunity that Paul and that the church had there in Ephesus. And you can remember the three vignettes this way. Providence, preaching, and power. So the first one, the first opportunity comes right as he arrives to Ephesus. And as we read, he finds some disciples, 12 of them, interestingly enough. And, And though they have come to some kind of faith, they have never received the Holy Spirit. We actually heard from Luke, they never even heard of the Holy Spirit. Now this is an anomaly in Scripture. But essentially what's happening here is that these are disciples of John the Baptist. They've received John's baptism. But as we've read in gospel accounts in previous weeks, and even as Luke records for us here, John's baptism was an anticipatory baptism. It had built-in anticipation. John himself said, I baptize with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, namely Jesus, will baptize you with what? With the Holy Spirit. With the Holy Spirit. So we don't know the details, but, but perhaps these disciples had been with John in Judea and then relocated for some reason across the Mediterranean to Ephesus before they had ever met Jesus or heard more about Jesus. Either way, they are, when we meet them here, essentially Old Testament believers. They're like a believer in the Old Testament before the fulfilling work of Jesus. A pastor and scholar named John Stott puts it this way. He said, they are still living in the Old Testament, but now Pentecost caught up with them. Or better yet, as Stott says, they were caught up into it as Pentecost's promised blessings became theirs. So this is one of those parts of Acts that is descriptive, not prescriptive. 
Uh, This is not a case in Scripture for Christians to receive a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. What it is a case for is for people to be baptized into the fulfillment of Jesus, of what Jesus has actually accomplished, including, as we read this morning in the words of encouragement, sending the Spirit. Not to be baptized in anticipation of Jesus, but in, in his fulfillment. Now, what can you and I learn from this initial opportunity? We can learn to look for the providence of God. God is always going before us. Even the most pioneering work in missions is preceded by the pioneering work of God himself. Where did these disciples come from? We don't really know, but in the providence of God, there they are, right as Paul shows up in town. And when Paul arrives, he looks for where God has already gone before him. He looks for those kinds of opportunities. And then when he sees them here, he avoids making assumptions that he shouldn't. So imagine if Paul met these disciples and they said to him something like, hey, we're so glad you're here. We're believers too. We've been baptized. We're part of the same team. And if Paul just said, hey, great, I'm looking for some teammates. You're in. Let's go. He would have missed this this opportunity that God had prepared for him and just dropped right into his lap. And Paul knew, as we know today, not everyone who says they're a Christian actually is one. In our cultural moment, that's trending downward in a hurry. Nominalism is quickly dying. Christian nominalism is dying. And for many reasons, good riddance. We don't need it. But there's just less pressure all the time for people to pretend they are a Christian if they're not actually serious about that, if they don't actually mean that. Nominalism, though, isn't fully dead. And beyond that, people in our culture mean very different things when they would call themselves or other people Christians. And so while, while being gracious and kind, we can't make assumptions, even if we'd want to. Like Paul, we need to look for how God has already been at work, where God is already at work, and then we need to be curious. We need to ask good and telling questions. We need to see if God doesn't just open a door of opportunity right in front of us with conversations like this one. Now, as things unfold in Ephesus, the next opportunity Paul has is preaching. Preaching. Uh, He once again, as is his custom, begins in the synagogue. And he gets three months there at the synagogue in Ephesus. That's longer than he actually gets in in many synagogues as he travels around. But when he's eventually kicked out, he's then able to set up every day in a lecture hall called the Hall of Tyrannus. And get this, for two years, two years, some scholars believe every single day for two years from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., kind of the siesta when people weren't working in the heat of the day, Every day for two years, he's able to proclaim Jesus. Now, if that's true, that is over 3,500 hours of preaching. And to put that in perspective, if you have heard every single sermon ever preached here at this church, at Liberty Church in the last 10 years, you're still under 400 hours. Sorry to disappoint you. We're going to like knock out four or five hours today just so I can start to catch up, catch up to Paul. But that's actually why That's why Luke can write in verse 10, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. We got to remember that this is the Roman province of Asia, not the continent of Asia that you and I know today. Still, tens of thousands and thousands and thousands more in what is is modern day Turkey and Greece hear 
the good news of the gospel of Jesus through Paul's daily public explanation of the word of God. And as that is happening in the hall of Tyrannus, the third opportunity that we see in Ephesus comes through all of these tangible expressions of Jesus' power. Extraordinary miracles, as Luke writes, healings, exorcisms. In other words, the same kind of ministry that Jesus himself did. So this is not only giving Paul credibility as a servant, as an apostle of Jesus, it's what God then uses to really kick that door of opportunity wide open for him in the city. We'll talk more about the opposition from the sons of Sceva in a little while. But notice what comes right after that. Verse 17. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Genuine spiritual power results in the exaltation of Jesus. Not a human being. If you see a demonstration of power and you're like, what's that? If it exalts the name of Jesus and not a human being, that's genuine Jesus spiritual power. Charlatans are people who point to themselves. Servants are people who actually point to Jesus. And note here the the fruit that results from this. There's repentance and there's a ton of life transformation. People who now extol Jesus, who having seen the real power of Jesus' name over every other power, they come confessing of their sin. They come turning away from the, the sinful and idolatrous practices of their former way of life. Now, when you read Acts 19, it doesn't mean that you you now need to go home and, and, you know, burn all of your Harry Potter books or something like that. People have taken it that way over the years. You don't have to do that. What this is showing us, though, is the cost of discipleship. The cost of discipleship. If you're going to follow Jesus, you can't hang on to everything from your former way of life. We're actually called to renounce, to abandon certain things that we once held dear, even if, especially if at times, they hold great monetary or or earthly value. 50,000 silver coins, or drachmas as they were called, would have been something like $6 million in today's money. That's costly. That's costly. And note also, they don't sell it. They don't turn around and sell that, even if they could take the money then and give it to the poor or give it to the church. There are some things that are so inherently idolatrous and sinful and do such harm to other people, we cannot profit off of that, even if we're going to take, we can't even be beneficial off of that. We can't be benevolent off of that. We don't want to advance the gospel at the expense of people that we're trying to reach with it. And in an effort to set some people free, we don't want to be party to enslaving people. So instead, in moments like this, you count at loss. You, you absorb the cost yourself. You flush the drugs. You throw out the pornography. Whatever else the modern-day equivalent of this might look like. Some of you, what, what do we do with, with this? Well, Some of you are here this morning, perhaps even, and you're considering whether you want to follow Jesus. And I would say, let Acts 19 encourage you to, to, to count the cost of that. Don't make that decision lightly or naively. Following Jesus in so many ways is a call to come and to die. And it is absolutely worth it. It's absolutely worth it, but it is not easy and it's not cheap. Others of us here this morning have stories like this. As Paul writes elsewhere, such were some of us. And if that's you this morning, or as we get to do that in each other's lives, 
Praise God for the radical kind of transformation the power of Jesus actually brings. Some of us are not only witnesses to this, some of us are evidence of it ourselves in our own life. So praise God, rejoice in your story, and share your story. Rejoice in the power that Jesus' name actually, actually has. Still others of us, maybe who have grown up in the church, maybe who have never known a time in your life where you've not wanted to follow Jesus. Your story, perhaps, probably is not this dramatic. You might never have burned or trashed or flushed anything as part of your conversion to Jesus. But what I hope you hear me say this morning is, your life is no less miraculous. And it takes the very same power of the name of Jesus to rip out your pride, to rip out self-righteousness and self-reliance. It takes the same power of Jesus to take your old hard heart of stone and give you instead a new heart of flesh. And if that's you, if you, if you have more of that kind of story, beware of the cares of this world. People who have, have had that in their past and they've known firsthand how unsatisfying that is, they often know better. Those of us that perhaps don't have those kinds of stories, there's maybe still an appeal there because we've never actually been wrecked by what that actually does to us. So if that's you, beware of the idols that like thorns can creep in and grow up and choke out faithfulness to Jesus. The cost that you pay might be more about preventing than renouncing something. It might be more about keeping your life free from things than it is about turning away and completely changing your life from former practices. Following Jesus, in other words, might have a different cost, but it is no less costly. In all of this, notice, though, the incredible opportunity, the wide door for effective work that opens to Paul in Ephesus. By providence, by preaching, by the power of Jesus, Luke can write there in verse 20, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And, and at the very same time, Paul and the church in Ephesus experience great opposition, many adversaries. So second, let's consider the opposition. Paul, as Luke has recorded several times here, shares the gospel with both Jews and Gentiles. And so it follows uh, that his experience of opposition comes from both of those groups. And Luke records one instance of each in Acts 19. So in verses 13 through 17, we see an instance of Jewish opposition. Some itinerant Jewish exorcists, the seven sons of this man named Sceva, uh, they attempt to cast, uh, to use Jesus' name to cast out demons. It's a little bit like what we read back in Acts chapter 8, if you were there, with Simon the magician, or Simon the sorcerer. Seeing the power that is at work in and through the apostles, these seven sons of Sceva say, well, I want in on that. I don't know what that is exactly, but it's clearly effective. I want in on it. Doesn't go really well for him, does it? One author, and I love this, one author calls it a reverse exorcism. So it's the evil spirit that ends up driving out the exorcists rather than the other way around, which is how it's supposed to go. Reverse exorcism. And this opposition is short-lived. It ends up actually displaying the far superior power of Jesus, but it's still opposition. It's still opposition. Some opposition to Jesus like this is a little more subtle. And we might think of it as opposition by imitating or co-opting Jesus, claiming his name even. 
But rather than desiring to be used by Jesus for his purposes, it's an attempt to use Jesus for your own. Now, we don't come across many, at least I don't. Um, If you do, I would love to hear the amazing stories you probably have. I don't come across many itinerant exorcists uh, in our culture. But this same kind of opposition is alive and well. So how do people use Jesus' name, co-opt Jesus' name in our time and place? Well, some use it for financial gain, telling people what they, what they want to hear, or worse, exploiting weak and vulnerable people. You know, send your best gift now and you'll be blessed. Sow a financial seed and you'll reap this financial harvest. Over the years, some televangelists have referenced Acts 19, actually, and even sold handkerchiefs or miracle cloths, saying, if you buy this, if you give your best gift, we'll send you this and it'll be a miraculous thing for you. The horror of that and the crazy irony of it is that if these televangelists would read just a few more verses, they would see that does not go well. That does not go well for you. This is not some kind of game. You actually co-opt Jesus' name to your own peril. And not that I want you know, evil spirits to go around beating people up like they do to the seven sons of Sceva. I do sometimes root for a few of those guys on TV to get knocked upside the head. Maybe just once, you know, maybe just to wake them up a little bit. And actually, maybe it would wake all of us up a little bit to see there really is power in the name of Jesus, and it's not something to be trifled with. For others, it's maybe not financial gain, but Jesus' name is co-opted for significance, position, power, to secure a place of influence or a place of control even over another person's life. Or for others still, Jesus' name is used to bolster your own agenda, a political party, a social theory, a cause. In this cultural moment, actually, still, even though nominalism is is dying, all kinds of groups claim Jesus for their team. Do they not? People on the right and people on the left. Christian nationalists and proponents of critical theory. Just like the seven sons of Sceva, we can oppose Jesus by using his very name. And people do that all the time. So, men and women, what I would say to you this morning is be slow to attach Jesus' name to something. Make absolutely sure it is his agenda that you are after and not your own. Use your life for his sake. Don't attempt to use his name for yours. That's one kind of opposition that we see in Acts 19. The other one this time from Greco-Roman culture or Gentile culture, comes in the last part of this chapter, starting in verse 23. And we read there that near the end of Paul's three years, the Ephesians riot. The Ephesians riot. Ephesus was the home of a temple, the temple, to the Greek goddess Artemis, uh, Diana, as she would have been known to Rome and Romans. And her temple, Artemis' temple, was just a mile or so outside of the city. It's actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Stood 60 feet tall. It was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. And if you've ever seen pictures of it or you've ever had the chance to be there, the Parthenon is huge. This was four times that size. And it was held up by 127 pillars. People from all over the Mediterranean world then would come to Ephesus specifically to see the temple and to worship the goddess Artemis at that temple, especially once a year for this week-long festival every spring. And that led, as you might imagine, 
to substantial sources of income for some of the Ephesians. So after nearly three years now of proclaiming the gospel and performing miracles, as we read there in verse 26, a great many people have turned away from false gods like Artemis. And so the silversmiths and other craftsmen, they're feeling the pinch. Not as many people are buying this year as bought last year, bought the year before that or the year before that. And so Demetrius, one of the leaders of the silversmiths, he gets the guilds together, the craftsmen together, and he gets them worked up. And then they in turn get the whole city fired up. And before long, there's a mob in the theater shouting themselves hoarse for two hours, even though most of them have no idea why they're actually there at all. Now, in taking all this into consideration this morning, let me ask you a question. Is Christianity a threat? Is Christianity a threat? Are Christians a threat to the people that they live and work and play among? On the one hand, not at all. Not at all. Christians are not called to be threatening people. And though history includes some horrible examples to the contrary, the gospel is always meant to advance, not by violence or by force or by coercion, but by our testimony, by the the faithful presence, by the words and the deeds of the people of God. And Christians' lives are meant to be characterized not by being inflammatory, not by being threatening kinds of people, but by the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Does any of that sound threatening? No, no. We've actually seen now in these past two chapters how the Roman Empire, at least at this point, was not threatened by the emergence of Christianity. In Corinth, in Acts 18 last week, the Roman proconsul there, a man named Gallio, was indifferent. People were getting fired up about Paul for preaching the gospel, and he said, you know what, this is an internal religious squabble. Rome will take no official position on it. Wasn't threatened. Now in Acts 19, we see Paul has actually made friends with some of the Ephesians known as Asiarchs. And these would have been leading citizens of the city who were the keepers of Roman culture. They were the ones to make sure across the Roman Empire that Roman culture was kept as as the empire spread. Paul was no threat to them. They were friends. They actually tried to keep him out of harm's way when this riot was happening. And likewise, then the town clerk, uh, the top administrative official in Ephesus says, these men aren't doing anything wrong. They're not doing anything wrong. They're not a threat to us or to Artemis. And if you think they are, okay, People get into conflict with each other, but be reasonable. The courts are open. Take the the official channels. So Christians like Paul and Gaius and Aristarchus, they were not threatening. On the other hand, they posed an immense threat to the Ephesian way of worship and to the Ephesian way of life. To the degree that, that after only three years, that impact was felt not only religiously, but economically. Industries were starting to collapse in only three years. And what I want to say to you this morning, son or daughter of God, is that you are called to the same thing. You are called to be the least threatening, most devastating threat this world has ever seen. Approachable, kind, gentle, and at the very same time, utterly deadly to idolatry and injustice. In Ephesus, it was silver shrines. Imagine the industries that might collapse in our day by the faithful presence and the labor of God's people. Pornography, 
what, what if the demand for pornography just went away? Billions and billions of dollars in this industry. And even some of us who have been enslaved to it, who are enslaved to it, what if by the grace of God we became free and the demand just went away and the industry collapsed? Or human trafficking in all of its forms, modern day slavery, sex trafficking, prostitution, all kinds of branches off the human trafficking tree. Or abortion. Abortion. What if, as others have said, what if abortion were not merely illegal, but also unthinkable? And turning to Jesus, what if people truly and consistently valued life made in God's image and then came to the aid of fellow image bearers who were facing what seemed to be impossible decisions? I'm sure you can think of other industries. I hope you do. May industries like these fall. And not because we are intimidating, not because we are inflammatory people, but because the gospel itself is death to idolatry and death to injustice. We need not be threatening in order to be a threat. And Christian, as an unthreatening threat, your life, like Paul's, like the church in Ephesus, your life will consist of opportunity and opposition. Both of those things all the time. Wide doors for effective work will open to you, and there will be many adversaries. This is not only a calling that we follow. This is not only an example that's been given to us to follow. We live lives this way because it is actually the source of our own salvation. Jesus Christ, gentle and lowly, friend of sinners, came into the world. And as the Gospels record, a bruised reed he did not break and a smoldering wick he did not extinguish. He was not threatening, but he turned the world upside down. He was utterly devastating to the world, the systems that oppose God, and to the flesh, our own sinful nature, and to the devil. He actually dealt death itself a death blow. So was Jesus a threat? You better believe it. And he still is to this day, but he is not threatening. And he stands in this moment ready to welcome you and to welcome me. He bids you come and die that you might find your real life and real joy and real hope in him. And his life, his saving work was one of both opposition and opportunity. As the author of Hebrews records, it was for the joy that was set before him, he endured the shame of the cross. That Jesus endured that degree of hostility, that degree of opposition from sinners. Why? So that he would become the founder and perfecter of our faith, that he would have the opportunity to welcome the very sinners who opposed him into his family and into his kingdom. So fix your eyes on Jesus today. Recognize that the opportunity of your salvation comes through the opposition that Jesus endured. In response, embrace the opposition. Embrace the opportunity that he has prepared for you. It's often that the most opportunity comes in the places of opposition and that the opposition comes as a sign that you are stepping into those wide doors of opportunity. So let us step into them. Let us say with Paul, there are many adversaries but a wide door for effective work has opened to me. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. We praise you, Father, for making divine truth real to us in Jesus. Even now, as we come to this table, we see tangibly the hostility, the opposition that Jesus endured, that it actually cost his own body and his own blood, offered up for the forgiveness of sins and so that sinners themselves might be reconciled. 
Thank you, Jesus, that you did that for the joy set before you, that the opportunity of welcoming us into your kingdom, that you counted the cost worth it. So may we count the cost to follow you, receiving the grace, receiving the salvation that you hold out to us through your finished work. May we step into the opposition and opportunity you've prepared for us. And we ask that as we do that, that what we do and the way that we live and the way that we love would be a worthy response to what you've done for us. Pray all this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.